Hey, Corchina, how are you? Corchina? Wait, I love that. Can that be my new nickname? <laughs> it's wonderful. Absolutely. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing well, you know. Living the dream. Living the dream. Living, loving, living to see another day. We're in spooky season. I love it. You got to go to Sleepy Hollow. I went to Sleepy Hollow. It was so fucking great and wonderful. I went to go see a magic show at Phillipsburg Manor, um, which I'd never been to. And I assumed when you think of a manor, there's things that you think of. You know, like you think of some like sprawling estate, something really yeah. classy, something out of like an Agatha Christie novel. A hundred percent. Is no, that bitch, how this was? We're in fucking Sleepy Hollow. Okay. So it was like nighttime already because it's October. So we had to cross the narrowest long bridge over like a brook, like a, a mill. And I was <laughs> a like babbling brook. I a love babbling it. brook. I was like, I fucking love this. And then we go to a building that's like been like uplit in purple. And I'm like, yes. And the bill and this magic show takes place in a fucking barn. Super spooky, super amazing, not remotely manor-esque. <laughs> Sir, this is where they keep livestock. I don't know if you're aware. But... <laughs> 10,000%. Thank you. It was wonderful. They incorporated all of the Sleepy Hollow legends into the show. I love that. I was used uh, to be like a medium of sorts. <gasps> okay. In the show. Mm-hmm. So they like put me in a quote unquote trance, but you know, I was like conscious, but they gave, so my eyes were closed and they gave me a bell and they're like, okay, just like ring the bell whenever you want. And I didn't know what was happening. I, I had to ask people I was with like what happened while I, because I just heard applause and I was like, I don't know what's happening. I'm just ringing this bell. So I guess the first time I rang the bell two times and I guess they were like running their fingers across like maybe the alphabet and they hit two letters and... Like someone was standing, they had picked someone to stand up, I think prior to me hitting the bell. And the two letters ended up being the dude's initials. Okay. Yeah. And then they did it again and it was like two numbers and it was the other person's, the other person who's standing up's birthday. Okay. That's kind of creepy, but also I love it. And then they had me do um, automatic writing. They gave me like a chalkboard and they had me close my eyes and just kind of like... And then I spelled out, and it, this was like in conjunction with a trick that was happening with everyone of like, they had all these pieces of paper with like faces of different Sleepy Hollow characters. Okay. And they had to like rip them up and this, not whatever, and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, who was coming through? And I had written HH. And then the picture that, like, everyone had was the picture of the Headless Horseman after, like, ripping it up and, like, all this. I don't know. I Like like I said, my eyes are closed for, like, the last third of it, so I missed out. Wait, that's awesome. Okay, so you're just a medium now. That's what that means. I guess so. (laughs) Um, You can sign up with my agent. I'm available on Halloween. Uh, It was very cute because, like, when we were leaving – uh, there was a gift shop, and this woman came up to me, and she's like, my son wants to ask you what it was like, but he's too, like, afraid to ask you. <laughs> and I was like, what do you want to know? He's like, what did it feel like? I was like, it didn't feel like anything. <laughs> I literally didn't know what happened. <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. It was real cute. Yeah. Ah, oh, you kicked spooky season off right. This was the fucking oh, absolutely. way to do it. Absolutely. That, and then we went to the great jack-o'-lantern pumpkin blaze, which is incredible. It's just, like, thousands of jack-o'-lantern pumpkins um but they're like a lot of them 
are like put together to make like the Statue of Liberty or like dinosaur. I, I think I told yes. showed you pictures of this last year. Yes, showed me pictures. It looked incredible. I forgot yeah. about that actually. I might try to look into doing that. Yeah, it runs and I think through the second week of November. Okay, cool. Yeah, but definitely would get tickets like right now because it all sells out because of I'm Halloween. sure. Uh, okay, I didn't know it yeah. was like a ticket thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just like show up. No, definitely not because of people like me who are obsessed. But it was so wonderful, and I just love all the spooky things. And I love when I could share that with people who don't, who aren't like, oh, God, but who are like into the spooky things. So that was, uh, it was very optimal. It was very fun. <laughs> yes. Give me all the spook. Yeah. That's awesome. I yeah. fucking love that, dude. Yeah. What about you? I didn't do anything nearly as cool. I did watch all of Encounters on Netflix. Okay. How was that? I absolutely loved it. I was going to start it last night and my like ADHD was like not having, my brain was just not allowing it. And I was like, well, fuck. I totally got that. But I fucking loved it. They covered the, one of the stories I did. Right, the Aerial Zoom. School, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I picked that up from the trailer, right? Which that one was very interesting because one of the students claimed that they had made it all up and basically mm. basically had convinced everyone else that this is what happened. So after however many years, now, and all these interviews, now the student is saying that, that he made it up. Yes, that he was like trying to get out of class, basically, and he just, <laughs> which kind of was my favorite part of it, because I was like, the lengths we'll go to, I get this so I much. mean, I totally, you know, if there's ever been anything relatable... It's that. About lying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. I feel like I didn't study for this test, man. Fuck. I don't get <laughs> I really don't want to go. Guys, yeah. there's aliens outside. What the fuck? <laughs> we need to not have <laughs> class. Thanks. But it was phenomenal. It's very well done. You're right. Like, Netflix quality. A lot of the people themselves do, like, the quote-unquote reenactments, which are, okay. you know, anything super crazy. And just, like, all of the experts they have people from the government and shit like that who are coming out and saying saying their truth here it's just oh, i loved it i binge watched all four episodes immediately um that's amazing it, do we know if there's any any talk about a a season two i fucking hope so i will rewatch it as many times as i need to for there to be a season two <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was very well done highly recommended you're gonna love it i cannot fucking wait it was very, very interesting. I'm definitely excited. I'm definitely behind on on the personal spooky. I mean, other than I just went to fucking Sleepy Hollow, went to Magic Show, and I'm fucking Pumpkin Patch. Um, I haven't put up any decor, and I haven't really watched any fun things. Not that I can discuss it, but there is a very highly anticipated series that is dropping on Netflix on the 12th <gasps> I know. that I've been waiting for for like a year and a half. Uh, that Which we can't is talk tomorrow. About. I know. I'm really sad that we can't talk about it, except for, you Not know, on the air. Um, just slide into those DMs. Uh, I can't fucking wait because I saw the trailer yesterday when my brain was not letting me watch um, Encounters. So I was like, fuck it. I could do two and a half minutes of a trailer. And I was like, oh, my God. This looks so good. So I'm very, very excited about that. Same. I know. I'm excited to discuss that with you. Not on the pod. And I know that SAG-AFTRA is in their, like, second rounds of talks. So hopefully we will be able to talk about it soon. 
Okay, I know good. that they're uh, resuming next week. So they're both going to the drawing table and and talking shit. So hopefully by Halloween I can talk all all the shit, all the spooky shit. My favorite. Fingers crossed. I can't wait because it's been ridiculous without TV shows to talk to. I didn't realize how much I based my life on talking about TV shows, but. Oh, for sure. Not only that, I was recently introduced to a website via a targeted ad. Thank you, Facebook. For listening to all my conversations. Right. Um, called Dolls Kill. Uh, and it's kind of like a goth kind of a, a website. Um, but I, I do buy a fair amount of goth clothes. But because I don't style myself goth, it just kind of looks like cute uh, and a little quirky. Cute and creepy. That's it. Uh... Yeah. Cute. Look at that. I know. Yeah. How on brand. <laughs> Fuck. But they recently did a collaboration with one of my favorite TV shows of all time, which was a 90s cartoon that aired on MTV in the 90s starring a girl who was over it in high school. And I lost my fucking mind because I had a gift card to them and I lost my fucking mind and I bought two things from that collection and I was like oh my god I'm going to talk about it on the podcast and I was like I can't because it's a fucking tv show motherfuck but that day's coming soon yes and then you guys are gonna be fucking sick of it and on the bright side <laughs> you can google it in the meantime I'm sure you can figure it exactly. out exactly yeah you can you, I gave enough uh enough clues <laughs> context for you to clues. figure out what, exactly context clues uh, for you to figure out uh, what show that was one of the things I bought was a jacket that has like a, a name tag of the character. And I was out the other night wearing it and someone was like, oh, is that your name? And I'm like, no. I was like, how old are you? And he's like, oh my God, like, how did you? And I was like, no, no, like you're a baby child if you don't know this name because it's not a common name at all. And then I was like, how old are you? He's like 27. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And he's like, no, but like what TV show is it from? And I was like, the name of the girl is the name of the show. <laughs> if you didn't know the name, you weren't going to know what it was. And I'm sad for you. Oh, God. Because we were we were young enough to experience the uh, malaise of the Gen Xer and then just have that, like, completely fuck us up. This is too real. This is too real. It's so real. <laughs> I don't know if you can see my sweatshirt. Oh, my God. I love it. And then I have a green jacket. Like her jacket, it's oversized, and then it has this on the back. And I was like, well, I need both of those. Amazing. I, I'm not going to Sophie's Choice this. I'm buying both. Um, somebody compared me to her the other day, and I was like, oh, my God. Really? Thank you so much. That's, like, so deeply flattering. <laughs> They're like, you didn't rhyme me up? And I was like, stop it. I mean, that's incredible. I've never been called that ever in like, my life. I was not mad about it. They're like, you cry too much, and you <laughs> wear pink a lot. And I was like, that's fine. <laughs> Whereas people are like, you seem like you're dead inside and over it. And you're like, astute observation. <laughs> that tracks. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Do you have any more news for the week? Or you want to jump into my paranormal Girl, story? I just want to say that I'm just so fucking stoked it's October. I know. It's my favorite fucking month. Not just because it's my birthday and because it's Halloween, but because it's the month that like everyone else is on board with the spooky. Yes. Everyone's on your level, finally. Everyone is finally on our trend. So I'm just always so jazzed when October is here. What, uh, what is that, the L.M. Montgomery line? I'm so glad to live in a world where there are Octobers. I love that. Yeah. And true. Facts, sir. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fuck, I love October. But girl, let's fucking get into it. I'm so fucking stoked. Me too. 
because the story comes from what might actually be like my all-time favorite paranormal show paranormal motherfucking witness fuck yes bitch so season two episode four i'm dancing she I'm is it's really cute too i like can't handle it <laughs> waving her hands in the air she went all like out i just don't one. care bitch <laughs> Other sources include the Salt Lake Tribune, Deseret News, h11dfs.com, slco.org, which is the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office website, and good old Wikipedia. Officer Dave Murphy wanted to work in law enforcement ever since he was a kid, and eventually began working with the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. His job was to watch over several county facilities, and his first assignment was the Capitol Theater which the Public Safety Bureau had been providing security to since 1978. The Capitol Theater is located at 50 West 200 South in downtown Salt Lake City and was constructed in 1913 as part of the Orpheum Theater chain. It originally operated as a vaudeville house named Orpheum Theater, but was renamed the Capitol Theater in 1927. And in 1976, it was purchased by Salt Lake County and restored as a performing arts center. It is now on the National Register of Historic Places. Capitol Theater seats just under 1,900 patrons and is home to Ballet West, Broadway Across America, Utah, the Utah Opera, and the Children's Dance Theater. His first night on the job, Murphy met Officer Morgan Matthews, who he would be assigned to for about two to three weeks, depending on how long it took him to get accustomed to the building. Murphy was a little nervous when he first arrived because it was a new job for him, but he was eager to learn. Matthews gave him the rundown. They would need to lock all the doors and turn the lights off in the building after all the employees and performers had left and would perform occasional sweeps of the premises. There were surveillance cameras throughout the facility, so when they weren't checking the building, they would sit in the control room and monitor things from there. Matthews then took Murphy on a tour. But it didn't seem like Matthews wanted to say much to him except about his duties. Murphy was instructed that the first time they came on shift, they needed to lock everything down. There were a lot of nooks and crannies that someone could hide in, so they needed to make sure to check them out to make sure no one was there. Matthews then took him down to the basement, which they called the catacombs. Murphy described it as massive. There were dressing rooms, locker rooms, maintenance, and the wood shop down there, and they would have to go through and check all the doors to make sure they were locked. Then they would work their way up through the different levels. Murphy said Matthews was quiet, very quiet, almost like he was holding something back. On August 9th, 2006, around 10 p.m., Murphy decided that he could do the rounds on his own. So Matthew stayed in the control room while Murphy went to check the theater. He was coming up the west stairwell onto the third floor, and the building had been locked down except for this floor. He made his way down to where the rehearsal rooms were and peeked his head in just to make sure nobody was there. Everything seemed fine, but then the door to the men's restroom suddenly slammed shut so hard oh. that it literally rattled the windows on that floor. He immediately looked to see if someone was running down the hall for the exit, but saw no one, and knew whoever had slammed the door must still be in the bathroom. He radioed Matthews to tell him that someone was in the theater and just slammed a door up there. Matthews checked the cameras, but didn't see anything. He told Murphy that he would be right there and proceeded to run as fast as he could through the theater to get to him. Murphy said there was no way to physically slam the door because it was the type with a hydraulic hinge on the top. So he was confused. Worried that he was dealing with an intruder, Murphy got his gun out and in the ready position to investigate. He had the distinct feeling that there was someone in the bathroom waiting for him. 
but his adrenaline kicks in and he knows it's his duty to check it out. And Matthews believed him when he said someone was in there. As soon as Murphy walked into the bathroom, a sickening feeling came over him and he immediately got goosebumps. He said this feeling of cold went through him and that he was suddenly freezing. Quote, it's a feeling of evil, end quote. Matthews entered the bathroom shortly after. He looked underneath the stalls and saw there were no feet there, but assumed the intruder was maybe standing on the toilet trying to hide. They checked all the stalls, but there was nothing there. Murphy said he's not easily intimidated, but admitted that in the restroom that day, he'd been scared. Still believing there might be someone in there, Matthews suggested they check the rest of the building. When the two got to the second floor, Murphy was shocked. All the lights that he'd just turned off were on, and the doors he'd just locked were now open. He knew he'd secured that floor, but every single light was on, and all of the doors were open. Oh my god. I know, girl. I love it. I love it. I mean, I don't want to be part of this. No, I don't want to, like, experience Do this, I want to hear about it? But I love hearing about yes. it. Yes. Absolutely. But I don't want this to happen to me. Absolutely not. No, never not. No. He asked Matthews if he had done it. But Matthew said he hadn't. After that, Murphy said things were a little cold between him and Matthews for the rest of the night. But it wasn't because Matthews was mad. It was because he, too, had experienced some unexplainable things while working in the theater, but felt like he just couldn't come out and tell him because he had to keep his credibility as Murphy's training officer. On August 11th, around 7.45 p.m., Matthews was on duty sitting at his desk in the security room when he started to hear voices whispering. It sounded like they were standing right behind him, but when he turned around, there was no one there. He said the hairs on the back of his neck stood up and his heart started racing. He thought something or someone was messing with him because he knew he wasn't crazy. So he went into the basement to see if maybe someone was down there instead. Although there were no voices, he smelled something and immediately recognized the scent. It was the distinct smell of smoke. And he said that it was so prevalent that the theater would have had to have burned down multiple times for it to have smelled that strong. He was 100% positive there was nothing going on, but felt like something was playing mind tricks on him, which made him question himself. On September 4th, around 4 p.m., Murphy came on duty and did his routine. Then he encountered a man standing at the end of the hall talking to two women and overheard the man say the word ghost, which obviously immediately got his attention. He introduced himself to the man, whose name was Blair Fuller. Blair was the senior accountant at the Capitol Theater. The two sat down together, and Blair told him about what had happened to him one night in 1997 while he was there working late. Now, just outside their main office is an elevator, and when the motor turns on, it's a very loud noise. That night, around 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening, Blair knew he was alone in the building but suddenly he heard the elevator moving. It reached their floor, and after about 30 seconds, the buzzer that indicates the door is being held open started to go off. Confused, he walked out to the elevator to see what was going on. He could see there was nothing blocking the door though, which he thought was odd, but he just figured it was some sort of malfunction. So he got on the elevator to check it out. But just as he was about to walk off the elevator, the basement button suddenly lit up. Before he could get off, the doors closed, and Blair was now heading down the three floors to the basement. And he was like, what is going on with this elevator? Why is it moving? When the elevator arrived at the basement and the doors open, Blair got off to check and see if there was anyone in the hallway. He looked around a bit, 
that there was no one there. He was very much alone and suddenly very nervous. But once again, he just chalked it up to an elevator malfunction. So he got back on and went back up to his office on the third floor. He sat down at his desk and, trying to push his nervousness aside, went back to work. As he sat there, though, he began to hear a metallic scraping sound coming from the file room. He went to see what it was, and when he got there, could only stand in shock as he watched all the file cabinet drawers open about two or three inches and slam closed repeatedly. Shut the fuck up. Girl, I know. I know. This man continued to work here for years after this. I'd been like, I... That's fucking nuts. <laughs> That's my two weeks notice. Thanks, guys. It's been real. I'd like maybe give it a week to be like, no, 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 I'm good. I got it. I got it. But like the second I'd hear something, I'd be like, no, man, I got to get the, the fuck, fuck out of here. I can't <laughs> I'm not doing this. Blair was absolutely terrified. And as much as he wanted to rationalize and explain what he was seeing, he just couldn't. But Blair said he never felt menaced, that it just seemed like someone or something was trying to get some attention. He said, once you acknowledge it, it stops. After hearing Blair's story, Murphy was slightly relieved because there was somebody else that had had similar unexplainable experiences in the building besides him, and he knew now that he wasn't going crazy. Which had obviously been his first thought, that he was going absolutely insane. I mean, yeah, because the alternative is... <laughs> There's fucking ghosts. ghosts. Which, like, if you're, you know, not a woo-woo person, and you're very, like, sane and rational, <laughs> you're like, absolutely not. What is wrong? On September 6th, around 8 p.m., it was getting towards the end of Murphy's training period, and Murphy and Matthews were doing their usual rounds at the theater. They were on the second tier of the auditorium when, out of the blue, Murphy asked Matthews if he ever got the feeling he was being watched in this place. And Matthews was like, what do you mean? Murphy said ever since he started there, he'd heard weird noises, had doors slam on him, found lights turned on in places where he knows no one is there, and just have this feeling of dread whenever he's in the building. And fortunately, that's when Matthews started to open up to him. He told Murphy about hearing the whispering voices and all the other strange things he'd experienced while he was working there. When they started to talk, Murphy thought of his friend of 15 years, Greg Gittins, who had the ability to see things, a quote-unquote gift, as he put it. So he told Matthews that he wanted to bring Greg in to see what he could find, and Matthews was all for it. So Murphy called Greg and invited him to come down to the theater, but didn't tell him anything about their experiences. Nothing. He wanted him to come in cold. The two officers started to give him a tour, and Greg said the first thing he noticed was that there were a lot of people standing there. When he told them that, though, they both played dumb and were like, what do you mean? Greg said, you didn't tell me this place was haunted. And according to him, the spirits there weren't good. They took the stairs that led down underneath the stage into the actors' dressing rooms. When they got into the hallway, they noticed that one of the doors was open a good foot. As they approached it, it slammed shut, hard and fast. Both Matthews and Murphy reached for their weapons. As they watched the door, the handle began to rattle violently, and all three of them saw this. When they opened the door to check who was on the other side, though, the room was completely empty. But it was clear that both officers were very rattled. They continued down the hall, and as they did, they noticed it suddenly got warmer. Matthew said he knew something was there because that was the spot where he always smelled the smoke. 
but didn't mention this to Greg. Greg immediately asked if there had ever been a fire in that building. Matthew said, why do you ask? And Greg just matter-of-factly said, because I can smell smoke. Greg then told them that he saw a young man down there and pointed to where he was. Neither Murphy or Matthews saw anything and knew they were the only three people in the building at the time. Matthew said that everything he told them was validation for the things they'd experienced, but that after Greg left, things just got more and more crazy. On September 15th, around 10 p.m., Matthews was at the theater alone on duty. The county had just installed a brand new infrared camera in the theater, so when the lights were off, they could actually see what was going on in the dark. Oh my god, I can't wait. Oh my god. Okay. For all I know. As Matthews was sitting there, he noticed there was someone sitting in one of the seats in the theater. So he maximized it to full screen on the monitor, and it was clear there was a figure there. Then all of a sudden, the figure shot across the theater with a roar. And like, Matthews himself in the interview, like, imitates the roar. So this is not just like paranormal witness reenactments getting a little over the top and crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting, yeah, Yeah. carried away. Matthews was terrified and immediately noped the fuck out. From that point on, he refused to work in the theater and said, quote, if there is something there that's demonic, I don't want to be around it, end quote. Now without a partner or any backup, Murphy was even more uncomfortable while he was on shift because he was all alone now. He'd come in for his shift, lock everything up, turn the lights out, and when he came back two hours later, the lights were on, all the doors were open, and there was nobody but him in the building. And every time this happened, he would have to go down and check the basement to make sure everything was secure, but said, quote, I don't feel secure, end quote. On September 28th, around 8.30 p.m., it was a quiet night, and once again, Murphy was all alone in the theater. He was in the control room watching the monitors when he started to hear music, like old-timey ragtime music coming from the theater. Oh my god, I love it. I fucking love it. I know. Girl. I love it so hard. (sighs) Oh, fuck. I know. This is one of my favorites, I'm not gonna lie. He'd already done his rounds and knew everything was locked up, and that there was no one in the building. But it's his job to go investigate. He said the music wasn't coming from the auditorium. But as he went down the east side stairwell, the music started getting louder. He said if he'd come around the corner and saw a prankster on the piano, he would have breathed a sigh of relief. But after all that had happened to him there, he knew the odds of that were slim to none. And sure enough, when he got to the piano, the music stopped, and there was no one there. Murphy said, quote, I'd witnessed enough. I didn't have to see any more, end quote. He knew he couldn't call dispatch. What was he going to tell them? The piano's playing and there's nobody in the building? <laughs> right. right? Like, fuck my life. I'm not, not yeah. here for this. Priest party, bitch. Right? Murphy didn't want to be in the building anymore and just wanted to get out. The next day, he went to talk to his sergeant and told him, quote, if you ever put me in that theater again, I'll quit. End quote. Because as he put it, this sure as heck wasn't in the job description. After Murphy was removed from that post, Josh Thomas became the officer on duty. He'd been a police officer for about five and a half years at that point when he was assigned to the Capitol Theater. During his first night on shift on November 26th, around 11 p.m., Thomas had already cleared the building and was now walking down the stairs to the basement. Although Murphy was in a patrol car that night and not on site, he called Thomas to check up on him, 
knowing he was the one now assigned to the Capitol and that he was bound to have some of the same unexplainable experiences that he and Matthews had. While the two were on the phone, the elevator suddenly started moving. Thomas knew that was impossible because he was the only one in the building. Slightly alarmed, he told Murphy, who immediately said he was on his way and started racing over to the theater, even though he had no desire to ever set foot in that building again. When the elevator doors opened on the basement floor, there was no one there. When Murphy arrived, he said Thomas's eyes were huge and he was clearly freaked the fuck out. Thomas told Murphy that he hadn't seen anyone in the elevator, nor had he seen anyone leave. So they immediately drew their guns to do a sweep of the building. As they're clearing the auditorium, Thomas saw a flash of something running by them in one of the mirrors. He turned to Murphy and was like, did you see that? But Murphy hadn't seen anything and told Thomas as much. So he chalked it up to a trick of the light and the two continued their sweep. As they did, Murphy went towards the stage door, which was quite a distance away from where Thomas was standing. Thomas then heard whispering near his ear and, assuming it must be Murphy, asked him what he'd said. But Murphy told him he hadn't said anything. Thomas turned and realized that Murphy was standing on the other side of the stage, absolutely nowhere near him. Thomas told him to quit messing with him, and Murphy's like, what are you talking about? But Thomas was convinced it must have been Murphy. So he's like, you just whispered in my ear. But once again, Murphy told him he hadn't said anything. At that point, Murphy had his back to the auditorium and Thomas was facing him, looking out into the seats. All of a sudden, Thomas froze and told Murphy there's something behind him. Murphy slowly started to turn around as Thomas shined his flashlight on it. When the light hit it, though, it immediately disappeared. And by the time Murphy had fully turned, there was nothing there. But it was clear that Thomas was completely freaked out by what he'd seen. He knew he wasn't just seeing things. He had clearly seen a figure with deep sockets for eyes and said that it had been looking right at him. After that night, Murphy wanted to find out who these beings were. So he talked to other staff members who worked in the theater, but said they weren't saying a whole lot. As he was leaving the building, though, a man approached him and handed him a piece of paper with a name on it. He told Murphy to contact that man if he was still alive. So Murphy did. The man was Doug Morgan, and he'd been a stagehand who had worked in the theater for about 40 years. Murphy arranged a meeting with Doug and told him all the things he, his fellow officers, and Blair Fuller had experienced and asked if he could shed any light on it. Doug had started working in the theater in 1948 as an usher. One day, he'd been out running some errands, and when he returned, he found the Capitol Theater surrounded by fire trucks. He showed Murphy a photo from that day of the theater in flames and told him that the fire had started in the basement. That afternoon, there was a movie being shown, and at least 600 people had to be evacuated from the theater. Although most everyone made it out safely, there was one stagehand who didn't and who perished in the blaze. The boy's name was Richard L. Duffin, and he'd gone back in to help the people who were still lost get out of the burning building. Richard ended up getting trapped in the basement and was overcome with smoke while he was trying to get these people out. Doug himself told the Associated Press in 1999, quote, I feel his presence every once in a while, end quote. Although his name was Richard and his middle name began with an L, his ghost is usually referred to as George for some strange reason and is said to be particularly active during performances of The Nutcracker. 
One opening night of the ballet, Doug said the stage lights wouldn't turn on, even though the power source and lighting program were active. So Doug walked down on stage, looked up, and said, George, knock it off, or I'm going to have you exercise. And sure enough, which, (laughs) that's a fucking move. I respect the fuck out of that. He's like, we got a show. I don't have time for this. Another time, George. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, for sure. And sure enough, according to Doug, the stage lights immediately came right on. After talking to Doug, Murphy felt that everything he'd witnessed and everything he'd experienced had been validated and said it almost brought him to tears because he finally knew without a shadow of a doubt that he wasn't crazy. After telling Matthews what he'd found out, Matthews said everything suddenly made sense. The shaking door as if someone was trapped and couldn't get out mm-hmm. and the phantom smell of smoke in the basement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though their fellow officers told them they needed to just keep quiet about the whole thing, Murphy said he couldn't. Even though they thought he was making the whole thing up, Murphy wanted to prove them wrong and said, quote, I know what I saw. I know what I felt. And these things, that's a part of my life now. End quote. Although he didn't mention them in the Paranormal Witness episode, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, Murphy also claimed to have seen a woman dressed in early 1900s clothes walk right past him as he sat in the control room and said his jaw dropped. He also saw dark shadows moving through walls and was at one point attacked by one of them, saying, quote, It felt just like I got a punch in the chest. Literally, I could not talk. Whatever it was, it had the power to shut me up, end quote. Although Murphy said he may one day return to the theater to catch a show, he would definitely never work there again. (laughs) I'll bet. Which, like, I get it, yeah. He said, quote, My nerves were shot. Some nights I would be shaking so bad it would take me hours before I would unwind. A lot of people think I'm crazy, but I know what I saw. End quote. But according to Cami Monk, the communications manager for Salt Lake County Arts and Culture, the hauntings might now be a thing of the past. In 2013, the year after Murphy and his fellow officers' experiences were broadcast on Paranormal Witness, the theater underwent a $33 million renovation. It was renovated again in 2019, and in addition to several technological and infrastructure improvements, all the seats on the floor of the main auditorium were removed, the floor was replaced, and more spacious seats were added. Monk said she hasn't had any experiences with George's ghost after the renovations. Quote, I don't think that he's with us anymore, end quote. And that is the story of the possibly no longer haunted Capitol Theater in Salt Lake City. That's wild, one. Two, it's also very interesting to me that post-renovation there hasn't been any activity because that usually is what stirs shit up. Yeah. Is renovating a place. It's like, oh, then I'm going to haunt you fucking twice now. Right? Like, how dare you fuck with my shit? Exactly. Don't you know who I am? This is my home. Thank you. (laughs) Exactly. So I found this story very compelling because obviously most of the witnesses are in law enforcement. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something where you really only have like your credibility and really you don't want the rumor to be out there that you're like scared and believe in ghosts. Like that's not a good look for you. Right, exactly. Yeah. And as Mark Lewis, a producer on the show, said, quote, They don't come more credible than that, end quote, which I loved. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
I thought you might. I love haunted theater. Haunted theater. I was like, I know you love theater. I know you love a story where, like, the police officers are seeing the weird, creepy paranormal shit. It was like, check, check, check. Across the board. I knew. I knew you love it. Emmy. Amazing. Yes. I love that. Uh, I... Well, you know, I'm not as, as super versed in paranormal witness as you are, but I had not seen that episode. I like that's amazing. I love that episode. It's I love so that good. story. Rather. And these are like the most just like down to earth, no nonsense cops ever. Like I can't imagine them making this up. I love that. Oh, it's so good. There was one story I almost picked over this because it was truly terrifying. But then I realized there was a book about it as well so did i order the book on amazon immediately and then get it shipped to me i did 100 percent. yeah i love it <laughs> stay tuned uh i love that story thank you so much you're so welcome i knew you would enjoy it and i feel i love a classic haunting for halloween i feel like i know yeah. we just can't beat it feels right did i want to do an alien yeah. story because i watched all of encounters of course i was like <laughs> Absolutely. But I was like, no, we need some ghosties for spooky season. For sure. And now, do you have a truly terrifying, traumatizing true crime story for me? I sure do. Um, This story's fucking terrible. I knew. It's so terrible that it's a fun fact story. Oh, Monique. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you're new here, when I do a story that's especially heinous, I pepper in some fun facts uh, after a particularly terrible part to just kind of cut the tension because this is a comedy show also, apparently. <laughs> but I only do that for kind of like the worst of the worst stories. And uh, this is fucking up there. Trigger warning for fucking everything. Noted. Very specifically, child abuse, child sexual abuse, uh, mutilations. Oh, oh, Monique. Yeah, real bad. Also, this is a story that has twists and turns. What I thought the story was when I started it changed like two thirds into it. So buckle the fuck up. It's going to be a bumpy night. So sources. CulturaColectiva.com. Oh, also this is like Portuguese, which is like kind of like Spanish, but not really. So uh, I'm going to try. If Spanish and French had a baby. Yeah. And I like I even though I have two French names, I do not abide (laughs) French language. I cannot. It makes no sense to me. Murray. Okay. Yeah, Marie. Yeah. I literally was like, <laughs> you're what like, the what's the other one? What's the other one? I was like, oh my God, do I not know Monique's middle name? Sanchez, no, I okay. the yeah. Frenchest of all the names. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Mar- Monique Marie, because Monique just wasn't enough for my Cuban parents to give their only daughter. But uh, yeah, so sources culturacolectiva.com, smh.co.au, nbcnews.com, alexandriadeters.com, wikipedia.com, and the Lights Out podcast. Valentina de Andrade was born on September 28, 1931, in the city of Carazino in southern Brazil. In her biography on her now-defunct website, she said her childhood was uneventful. She lived in a small town in Brazil and came from a poor family and grew up semi-literate and without things like toys. While she says she could have eventually learned to read and write better, she opted against it, believing that improving her literacy would, quote, distort her authenticity, end quote. She was a creative and imaginative child who liked to sing and write songs and poems. She described herself as an extrovert who was loyal, real, affectionate, and discreet. Oh. Which 
Okay. That's, I think that's a, of all of the things, I, there's definitely one of these does not sound like the other one of these things does not belong. Yeah. But I'm going to say the Valentine is a whole ass vibe. <laughs> we're we're going to get into it. Important to note for the story ahead. She also went out of her way to say on her website that during her life, she never practiced a single act of evilness or something that could disturb her conscience. And went so far to say that she believed that she had unquestionable dignity. Okay. That's a bold statement, ma'am. Yeah, I find it to be a little the lady doth protest too much. I Yeah, I was going to say. Personally. If you have to say it, then maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll get into it. Like I said, twists and turns. Buckle up. In 1981, when Valentina was 50 years old, she had a spiritual experience that changed her life forever. Valentina claimed that she had a vision where she was contacted by extraterrestrials that warned. What? <laughs> Girl. <gasps> yep. Little did you know. I love you. You wanted aliens, bitch, and you fucking got them. I love you. <laughs> You're amazing. You should have seen Amy's eyes. They like bulged <laughs> in her eyes. I'm sort of be like, what is happening here? Twist and turns, indeed. I was not expecting an ET tie in at all. Oh, absolutely. So Valentina claimed that she had a vision where she was contacted by extraterrestrials that warned her about the end of the world, but that the aliens promised her that if she spread their word, they would eventually send a spaceship to save her and all of her followers before doomsday. And this vision wasn't just a one-off. According to Valentina, the aliens had repeated contact with her, and as a result, she formed all new beliefs that she insisted, none of which were native to the Earth, but had been given to her by these cosmic beings. She believed she was materialized energy on the planet Earth, and that she was a cosmic entity of light, love, and truth. Which, that's kind of sweet. I like that. All right. Sure, that's nice. Yeah. I don't think this is going to end well, but... I mean, it's the true crime portion, so, you know. Yeah. She believed that Jesus was not God, but that the two were antagonistic consciences. She believed in reincarnation and that there was a way to recover those previous memories. She said that children could be outstanding physicists, mathematicians, performers, musicians, and even gain the ability to speak different languages so long as they were able to tap into the memories from their past lives. She claimed to have all of the answers to the universe and that she had material proof of all of her beliefs. And if you were interested in the secrets of the universe, all you had to do was buy her book because yep. nothing says a leader of the people like a paywall. <laughs> But she did have some progressive views. She was very accepting of gay people. And granted, this was the 80s when many major religions were vehemently against homosexuality. And, you know, a ton of them still haven't really bent on their views in the fucking 2020s. She said that the aliens had also given her the divine truth about love. She said that it is criminal and unfair to not allow anyone in love, whether they be gay or straight, to not be happy. And that if parents didn't accept their children for who they were, parents are, quote unquote, executors, which I think she means executioners, but okay, literacy and all that in different language. And that if parents didn't accept their children for who they were, that they were denying how God created their children and, in fact, denying God himself. But she also talked about how love and lust were dangerous. And it could be that the reason she felt this way 
wasn't because of some sort of extraterrestrial wisdom, but because Valentina herself had been married once, but it appears that things didn't work out so well and her marriage ended in divorce. And it is believed that she never had another romantic relationship again. And so she dedicated her life entirely to her spirituality. She spoke about a wide array of topics in her writings. She covered organ donation, comatose states, deja vu, the disappearance of objects, ghosts, miracles, haunted houses, energy while sleeping, life after death, and energetic loads and protection. And it's a huge bummer because as recently as December of last year, this website was still up and running and it's not anymore. No. So I can only get this information like secondhand through because there's not even articles written about like the website specifically. It's all through podcasts of like people who are like, I went on the website and this is what the fuck it said. That's how I have to get that info, unfortunately. But the A number one thing she loved talking about was doomsday and the end of the world. At some point, Valentina moved to the Brazilian town of Altamira, and the townspeople believed that she was a clairvoyant who could see the future, so she became the local seer and fortune teller, and people would pay her so that she could tell them their fate. She became very popular around town, and it was around this time that she wrote a book titled God the Big Farce. In it, she claimed that God wasn't real and that Jesus was actually an alien. Now, you know, it's a take. Okay. Sure. Has she been watching Asian Aliens? What's going on here? <laughs> Girl, I don't know. Maybe. Now, if you think this would have been a controversial opinion, apparently not because her popularity around town only grew after the publication of her book. And it was soon thereafter that she created her very own cult, Superior Universal Alignment. And you can't have a cult without followers. And Valentina's gifts were so respected of the community that she had no problem amassing disciples. Remember how I told you that she was super into Doomsday? Well, she told her followers that the aliens had told her the exact day the world was going to end but that she would only share that super important detail with only her most dedicated followers. And it's at this point where she imposes a really wild belief on the group, one that is a core belief of superior universal alignment. Valentina said that any child born after 1981, a.k.a. you and me, was the reincarnation of evil and that they needed to be, quote-unquote, expunged. No, what? I mean, I've met some of them that I'm like, okay, bet. I can agree with that. But like... Rude. Any child born after 1981. How dare you, ma'am? Exactly. That's a vibe. Okay. Like I told you, she's a whole ass vibe. So if you wanted to join her cult, but you had some pesky kids, Valentina would force you to give your children to other members of your family or straight up put them up for adoption. Jesus Christ. Girl. The alien. I can't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what the fuck? In her book, she wrote, quote, watch out for the children. They are unconscious instruments of the great scam called God and his evil collaborators. End quote. Also, don't know what's the beef with God. Right? Okay. Know how she said that she knew that the world was going to end and that the aliens were going to send down a spaceship so Valentina and her most devoted followers could escape Earth's destruction? Well, any children born after 1981 were not welcome aboard the ship. 
And her followers totally bought this. So thing is, you can't have a doomsday cult without having a solidified date in the near future. And while I couldn't find what Valentina's end of the world date was, I know that she did eventually share it with her followers. And like many a doomsday cult before and after superior universal alignment, the date in question came and went without incident. No alien spaceship, no end of the world. This left her followers confused and they began to question everything they knew to be true. Now, if you think that this meant questioning whether Valentina was full of shit and a false prophet, think the fuck again. They questioned their own faith, believing that the doomsday spaceship hadn't come to rescue them because they had not been faithful enough to Valentina and the universal superior alignment. It was their fault, or since we're blaming the children here, their children's fault that the spaceship didn't come for them. And Valentina leaned into this hard. Around 1987, she accused her followers of not proving their loyalty to her. She claimed that they didn't believe strongly enough in her and her teachings and warned that if they didn't have total faith in her, they would never be saved. The only way the divine prophecy could come to fruition and they could be saved would be if they believed Valentina wholeheartedly and without question. And it was around this time that young boys living near Altamira began mysteriously disappearing or showing up dead. So everything I'm going to say for the next uh, like 10 minutes is going to be fucking terrible. So if you have a drink or you want to pause and get one or whatever uh, drug of choice uh, you have, a snuggy blanket, I don't know, um, just you have been warned. The first known victim was an eight-year-old boy named Joseph. On August 2nd, 1989, Joseph left his house and encountered a strange man who lured him away. While Joseph was found alive hours later, he had suffered some serious injuries and showed signs of sexual assault. While what happened to Joseph was awful, it seemed like authorities just hoped it was a one-off, and not only that, Joseph was poor, so who actually gave a fuck, which is just that thing you see of the, you know, if you're not attractive, white and rich and, you know, who gives a fuck? Um, yeah, sorry, shit happens. Yeah, exactly. Sucks to be you. So fucked. But spoiler, things only got worse. Three months later, on November 16th, 1989, a 10-year-old boy named Antoniel was delivering mangoes to a man in town when the man invited him to eat them with him. The two went for a long walk, and once the man got Antoniel in an isolated area, he pulled the boy towards him, took out a strong-smelling cloth, and put it over Antoniel's mouth and nose. The boy eventually passed out from the strange fumes, and when he eventually came to, he felt disoriented and noticed that he was bleeding between his legs. No. It's going to get really bad, like, like right now. And that's when he also felt an intense pain between his legs. Because not only had the strange man raped the boy, he had also cut off his genitals. <gasps> I was not prepared. No, girl. I know. I know. No. Uh, yeah. Poor baby. Literally. Why are people so awful? <sighs> when Antoniel returned home to his mother... She rushed him to the hospital, and for the next several years, 
he underwent psychological treatment and dozens of surgeries for genital implantation and reconstruction. His body would later reject the implant, and in news that is probably not shocking to anyone, he would never fully recover from the trauma. So Australia is wider than the moon. The moon sits what? at yeah, who knew that? Uh, the moon sits at two thousand one hundred thirteen miles in diameter, while Australia's diameter from east to west is two thousand four hundred and eighty-five miles. That's actually wild. Yeah. Fun fact. The next victim was a nine-year-old boy named Waldy Clay. On July twenty-third, nineteen ninety, while walking along the edge of town near the forest. Walde Clay came across a strange man who asked him for help getting Kite out of a tree. And I remember hearing this on My Favorite Murder ages ago. An adult will never ask a child for help for anything. No. No. And there's no children listening to this, I fucking hope. But um, if you do have kids, sharing that fact with them might might not be a terrible thing. Like, other than being like, you know, help with the dishes. You know what the fuck I mean. A stranger's not going to be like, hey, could you help me get this fucking kite out of a tree? Yeah. You know, nine-year-old. Can you help me find my dog? I feel like that's a big one. Yeah, for sure. The boy followed the man deeper into the woods, and eventually, just like had been done to Ontoniel, the man put a cloth over the boy's face, causing him to pass out. When the 10-year-old awoke, he realized that he had been castrated and raped. He also had to undergo several reconstructive surgeries and psychological treatment. For the next few years, this type of horrific violence became commonplace towards young boys who lived around Altamira. The story always went the same way. The boys would be out tending to their family's farm or shining shoes or selling local goods or playing by the banks of the local river. And then a strange man would lure them away. And when the boys were found, they had been raped and mutilated. But because these crimes were literally the stuff of nightmares, the your poor, so who really is going to give a fuck defense from the police, wasn't going to fly. Each mutilated boy brought on more widespread media attention. So a formal investigation was opened up and led by police chief Edder Marot. The three boys who had survived the attacks were obviously the authorities' best source of information. But even they couldn't give them that much. Only that the man was a stranger who had acted alone. By 1990, the first round of investigations was completed and the Para Police Department arrested a drifter named Rotilio de Souza. Oh, also, there's like eight de Souza's in this story. And <laughs> oh God, that's my nightmare. From what I understand, none of them are fucking related because I feel like that would have been brought up, but I don't know. They're not related from what I can gather. Investigators were confident they had gotten the man who was responsible. But a few months after he was arrested, de Souza died in prison under suspicious circumstances. And while they believed they had gotten their man, boys kept disappearing, and their bodies were being found with the same injuries as Joseph Ontoniel and Walda Clay. So investigators had to admit that D'Souza wasn't the perpetrator, or at least he wasn't the only one. And the investigation resumed, and the list of victims kept growing. The first few victims were assaulted, mutilated, but survived. Within less than a year, however, of the first known attack, young boys were now being found dead, if at all, as many of them were never seen again. The first boy to go missing was a 13-year-old named Tito Mendez. On January 20th, 1991, Tito went swimming in the Tres Pontes stream before heading to the store. 
Eyewitnesses saw Tito in the company of an unknown man. After that, the boy was never seen again. The first reported death was that of a 10-year-old boy named Alton Fonseca. He was first reported missing on May 5, 1991. His mutilated remains were found 46 days later. Jesus. Oh, my God. And if that isn't just horrific in every possible way, Tito's body was taken to the morgue in Belém, but then, quote-unquote, mysteriously disappeared before it could be autopsied. Who's he? What's it? Mm-hmm. That is incredibly sketchy. Uh-huh. What the fuck is going on here? This is this is a very, like, get out the etch-a-sketch because it's super sketch situation. I feel sure. like this is one of those, like, it goes all the way to the top things. Girl, I told you, like, what I thought the story was two-thirds into it, like, wildly changed, twists and turns. On August 21st, 1991, an 11-year-old boy, only known as JCB, disappeared. The case was dismissed at the time for lack of clues. On New Year's Day, 1992, a 13-year-old boy named Jordili de Cuna was last seen with an unknown individual just before disappearing. His body was found a few days later, naked, castrated, with signs of sexual assault, several cuts across the skin, and severe burns. It is unclear whether Judili suffered these burns and cuts before or after he was killed, which is a thing we'll get into a little bit later. On April 11, 1992, a 12-year-old boy named Hernando de Souza Teixeira was found beaten to death beside a local well. Dark wounds covered his entire body, and he died from internal bleeding. Later that fall, on October 1st, a 13-year-old boy named Janes de Silva Pessoa was last seen out in the fields tending to his family's cattle. A few days later, his body was discovered. He had been raped, castrated, and his body showed signs of torture. And, okay, this is really, really, really bad. This is, it's all bad, but this is really bad. And because apparently that wasn't enough for the sicko who did this, the poor child also had his eyes gouged out and his hands chopped off. And, again, we're not sure if this happened pre- or post-mortem. Switzerland oh. prohibits the ownership. I was just going to say, can I have a fun fact, yep. please? Yep. Jesus. Yep. Switzerland prohibits the ownership of just one guinea pig. Since guinea pigs are such social creatures, one guinea pig would get lonely, so just having one is considered animal abuse in Switzerland. Interesting. Yeah. I actually learned this, not the Switzerland thing, but that guinea pigs, uh, like, need a friend. Otherwise, they get, like, horribly depressed and might die because Am I not, a lot have dogs in, I, <laughs> not a lot of dogs in my building. So I was like, can I get, like, a hamster, like a gerbil or a guinea pig or something? So, yeah, I looked this up. I've never seen anyone who owned two guinea pigs. Really? Nope. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I've known anyone who really owned a guinea pig. I had ferrets as a kid. Of course you did. Of course I did. That's not remotely shocking to me at all, Amy. They were super cute. They were very funny. They would steal everything <laughs> and, like, hide it under the drawers of my dresser. So anytime you lost anything, you'd be like, where the fuck is this? I'd be like, hold on one second. I'd go and pull the whole drawer out, and they would have, like, a little stash of just, like, hair ties or, like, whatever they could find. They liked shiny things especially. That's adorable. I love that. They're really cute. 
they're kind of smelly though they're very musky smelling mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i do know that yes back to the awfulness then on november 17th 1992 also if i know i'm just kind of like rattling them off but it's about like two to three months in between each of these okay so it's it's very close together yeah that these things are happening then on november 17th 1992 a 13-year-old boy named Clubson Ferreira Caldas's naked, castrated body was found. His body also showed signs of torture. On December 27th, another boy named Mauricio Farias de Souza went missing. He was only 12 years old. He had gone to pick up a payment from a woman he had worked for. He was last seen with a strange man riding a red bicycle. These assaults, mutilations, and murders started in 1989 but even after the new year in 1993, boys kept disappearing, and the police weren't any closer to catching the monster behind these crimes. And for some nonsensical fucking reason, the murders weren't initially linked to each other, and many of the cases were dropped for lack of evidence. But after literal years of disappearances, assaults, and murders, seven separate investigations were eventually opened up but police still struggled to make a connection as to why these boys were disappearing and who was behind it. On January 23, 1993, a nine-year-old boy named Renan Santos de Souza went to play on the banks of the Chingu River. He was last seen with two men and then disappeared. On March 27, 1993, 10-year-old Flavio Lopez de Silva went missing. His body was found a few days later with signs of torture and injury to his genitals. There were also strange circular wounds that covered his body. They were later revealed to be human bite marks. Oh my god! Alright, this, this, part's, this part's really, really bad. Um, <sighs> Monique, I'm already never going to sleep again. I know. What? I, I wanted to give you an Amy story because I feel like I've been going a little bit soft because it's October. You take the cake. Like, I think the award is yours now for most fucked up story. Yeah, this is, like, one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard in my life, and I don't know why it's not more widely known. It has been speculated that whoever killed Flavio might have actually eaten parts of him as well, as investigators also found that the tip of the boy's penis had been cut off and that his scrotum had been, to use an exact quote, torn out. Oh my god. This is an Amy story. Cannibalism on top of all of this fucked up shit. Girl, have you been reading my diary? What's happening? (laughs) People used to say prunes when taking pictures instead of cheese. Interesting. Used to be prunes. In the 1840s, it was considered childish to smile for pictures, so it became popular for people to say prunes instead of cheese in order to keep their mouths taut. So I guess what, whatever the face is that when you have, like, prune juice. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Who the fuck knew? One of the last known boys to go missing was an 11-year-old boy known as RFS. He was a shoe shiner in the streets. And on July 9th, 1993, he had left his tools behind at the supermarket, something he never normally did. After that, he was never seen again. Investigators later discovered, however, that a few months earlier, RFS's brother had previously escaped his own abduction attempt. What the fuck? Girl. 
Authorities thought that RFS's abduction and his brother's attempted abduction had to be connected. Fucking finally, we're connecting shit. Not only that, since many of these boys were poor and had to work for a living, police finally started to think that not only were these cases connected, but maybe they were connected to an underground trafficking ring. But when I say trafficking ring, I don't necessarily mean sex trafficking. You see, the cuts on the boys' bodies looked intentional, like they were trying to cut open their stomachs and remove their organs. What the ever-loving fuck, Monique? When I started researching this, I was not remotely prepared for any of this. You warned me, and I still am not prepared for any of this. I fucking know where this is going, and I'm not prepared. <sighs> oh, God, okay. Investigators now believed that the children of Altamira were being kidnapped in order to extract their organs and sell them on the black market. That maybe doctors and their surgical skills were the ones who had done this. And wouldn't you know it, two doctors by the names of Anicio Ferrara de Souza. See, there's like this is like the eighth de Souza. There's so many Seriously. De Souza's and de Silva's. And Cecio Brandao had moved to Altamira in 1990, aka around the same time that these boys were being abducted and murdered, and the police were certain that this was not a coincidence. However, upon further investigation, experts suggested that the organs taken from the children would have been unable to be used for transplantation, as the wounds were too violent for the organs to be viable. With no more leads or physical evidence, the doctors were released and the case went cold. The investigation was almost at a complete dead end when authorities came across a bit of luck. They came across an unnamed boy who claimed that he recently escaped his captors. He claimed to have been imprisoned by several people, and when the boys spoke with the police, he identified his captors. Many of the accused were high-ranking members of society, including a police officer, doctors Anicio Ferrara de Souza and Cecio Brandao, who had already been suspects, the son of a wealthy land baron, and Valentina de Andrade, the leader of Superior Universal Alignment Cult. What did I say? This goes all the way to the tippy top. Girl, we're going to get into it. News that Valentina and her religious group could have anything to do with these horrific crimes shocked the community as the cult was small and mostly kept to themselves. But the community turned on them quickly, and it wasn't long before word of secret things the cult allegedly did behind closed doors made it to the mainstream media. Stories of ritualistic abuse and cannibalism began to spread. Supposedly, the doctors in the cult had removed the boys' organs not only to sell on the black market, but to perform black magic rituals. Rumors went flying. No one knew exactly what was true or what was exaggerated, but the police were determined to turn the community against the superior universal alignment. And in the height of a satanic panic, which, if you thought that was just an American thing, boy, are you fucking wrong, because the satanic panic was apparently fucking everywhere. Authorities knew that spreading stories about Satanism and black magic rituals was the best way to do it. As the investigation began to unfold, police uncovered another horror. On April 6, 1992, on the coast of Pirana, a six-year-old schoolboy named Ivandro Ramos Catano went missing. Five days later, his mutilated body was found in a field near Guaratuba, and his killer had cut off the boy's hair, toes, ears, hands, and genitals. 
His intestines, liver, and heart were also missing from his body. After the discovery, investigators believe the boy's death was the result of human sacrifice for some black magic ceremony. Nutmeg is a hallucinogen because it contains myristicin, a natural compound that has mind-altering effects. You can experience hallucinations if you ingest large quantities. Well, I have never done that. I was aware of that information. So you can trip out on Nutella, kids. There Happy you go. Ooh. I mean, I thought that that was just being, ha- that was just euphoria of just eating Nutella. <laughs> Apparently you're just tripping out. <laughs> the lead detective told a local news outlet that the boy had been killed at a sawmill as the boy's blood had traces of sawdust in it. The former mayor just so happened to own the sawmill. The killer or killers then threw Ivandro's body into the nearby sea and his bloated, mutilated corpse washed ashore soon thereafter. In the news, Ivandro's case became known as the Witches of Guaratuba, and it became a literal witch hunt. Authorities accused the ex-mayor's wife, Selena, of paying $2,000 to the cult members so that they would kill the boy as a ritual. Her husband's political career and business ventures were failing, so investigators believe that Selena might have had the boy killed in a black magic ritual intended to bring about good luck and prosperity. According to the police, Selena and her daughter Beatrice confessed to the crimes, but they later recanted their confessions. But authorities held strong saying that they had plenty of evidence that pointed to the existence of an international network of satanic cults. Not surprisingly, the investigation ran into several problems. Because they're blaming this murder and the assaults and murders and disappearances of 14 other boys on Satan? Sure. But more so because they never actually fucking performed an autopsy on Ivandro's body or any of the mutilated boys' bodies that they had found. Not only that, they had completely failed to secure or even properly investigate the various crime scenes. What? Like, who? who's responsible for this? Like, who dropped the fucking balls about like? Literally fucking everyone. Literally fucking everyone. This is insane. It is a fuck up of unbelievable proportions. In every case, no forensic examinations were done at the crime scene. So because of that, there was no physical evidence to connect anyone to the crimes. Oh, my God. Yep. And you know what? I could even understand one of them. We're like at like 15 boys right now. At the second one, aren't you like, you know, maybe we should like get some crime scene tape. The only thing I could think is because this like involves such like high profile people that they like told them not to do any of that. Like they're like, you don't need to worry about an autopsy. Like you don't need to worry about the crime scene. Like it is believed that this is just a widespread conspiracy. Well, that is one of the possibilities that's happening here. But we're only halfway through this, kids. There's more wild shit to come. The former mayor, who was one of the main suspects in Ivandro's murder, died shortly after being arrested. And while his wife Selena and daughter Beatrice spent almost six years in prison, they were later acquitted of the murder in 1998. Beatrice was fully pardoned in 2006, and Selena couldn't be retried even if prosecutors wanted to because under Brazilian law, anyone over the age of 70 cannot be tried a second time. Okay. So I guess commit a crime in Brazil and try to get away with that the first time. And if you're after 70, you're golden. Not saying that they necessarily committed these crimes, but that's a kind of really weird law. I'm assuming it's probably like, you know, resources or whatever the fuck. 
Yeah. Being like, why are we going to try you again? You're going to die soon. I don't know. I'm speculating wildly. By 1993, the other boys' deaths were still a mystery. Investigators decided to reopen the case. They rearrested the two doctors that they had previously suspected and officially connected them to the Superior Universal Alignment Cult. The more investigators looked into the cult, the more they felt that they had a motive. The cult's leader, Valentina, was clearly against children born after 1981. She believed that they were evil and violent, so she became the police's prime suspect. The cult was also investigated for their involvement of the kidnapping and murder of Ivandro. They searched Valentina's estate, where they found ritualistic hoods and hundreds of videotapes of their rituals and ceremonies. In one of the videos, police say they saw Valentina enter a trance and tell her followers to, quote, kill little children, end quote, in Portuguese. However, the audio quality in this video is very poor. So there's a little bit of like an EVP situation where you can kind of hear whatever you want. And experts who later watched the video said that they believed what she was actually saying was, quote, yes, there are more experienced little children, end quote. Apparently, those two things sound similar in Portuguese. The evidence was thrown out and Valentina's name was removed from the judicial inquiry. She claimed that she never worked with the organization in Brazil and she had only visited Altamira a few times. She claimed that the last time she had been there was in 1987. And based on the evidence found at Valentina's house, as again, they had no other physical evidence, Edder Moreau closed the case and concluded that the murders were committed by the sect participants during rituals of Satanism and black magic. And just an interesting side note, Moreau eventually became the federal deputy representative of Para Brazil in 2015. And from 2015 to 2020, he was accused of covering up extortion and torture by police officers, assaulting a trans woman, and promoting homophobia. Bruh. Yeah. Look at your life, look at your choices. 10,000%. But the courts ended up moving forward with the seven indictments. But again, because of the total and utter lack of any physical evidence, the only way that the case could move forward was by gathering eyewitness testimony. One witness claimed they attended a cult meeting at the doctor's home in 1991, leading many to believe that this meant that Valentina must have been in town that year even though she claimed that she hadn't been back since 1987. Police accused Dr. D'Souza of being the one who performed the castrations on the young boys. Witnesses came forward, claiming to have seen him praying to the god of darkness. Police alleged that the doctor had tried to stay under the radar by doing good deeds in the public eye. He provided cheap health care to local residents, provided free housing, and made campaigns to raise money to help needy families. The other doctor, Brando, was also indicted. Eyewitnesses claimed that he had also participated in cutting off the young boy's genitals. Another eyewitness claimed to have seen the doctor on the Trans-Amazonian Highway carrying a styrofoam box and a blood-stained machete. He ended up being arrested in 1993. Another man by the name of Almitan Madeira Gomez was also indicted for the crimes. He was an openly gay man and heir to several farms and gas stations in the area. Likely because of homophobia, authorities believed that he was the strange man who had lured the boys away and raped them. Right after the disappearance of one of the victims, 
eyewitnesses claim to have seen him wearing a bloodstained shirt. A fourth man named Carlos Alberto Santos Lima was also indicted. He was a military policeman who worked as a security guard at a gas station that belonged to Alamiton. According to police, he confessed to being part of the criminal group. They also indicted another military policeman named Aldenor Ferreira Cardosa, who was also indicted for providing security for this criminal organization. The heir's father, Jose Amadeus Gomez, was also indicted after being accused of masterminding the murders and the castrations committed by the doctors. According to the police, he had practiced the black magic rituals for financial gain. And then, of course, the last person to be indicted was Valentina de Andrade. She was accused of being the cult leader and the intellectual mentor of the homicides. Everyone who was indicted, except for Jose Gomez, the one who owned all the farms and the gas stations in the area, and Valentina were detained. Valentina was allowed to walk free until her trial date. The cases against all those indicted were weak at best. The investigation also had several huge flaws. Again, no official autopsies were ever performed. No forensic evidence was performed at the crime scene. So there was no physical evidence that could connect any of the accused to the actual crimes. But it didn't matter. Prosecutors thought eyewitnesses would be strong enough evidence. And worldwide pressure was building, and they desperately needed someone to go down for these horrific crimes. On September 6, 1993, the indictments were accepted by the prosecutor. So they moved forward with the murder trials. But according to the Brazilian Constitution, it's up to the court and the jury to make a formal judgment on cases involving murder. So in order to get to trial, the evidence must be approved in what's called the investigation stage. This is where they determine if the evidence is one, relevant to the crime, and two, can prove a fact in the case. And obviously, authorities are totally fucked on the evidence front. The entire process was put on hold and resumed multiple times. Three different judges participated during the investigation stage. When the investigations began, witnesses and informants had to testify. One of the witnesses that came forward was Dulio Nolasco Pereira, Valentina's ex-husband. On March 30th, 1993, he testified that he saw Valentina in town with a group of friends in 1986. He was struck by how attentive they were with her. They paid close attention to her and admire her every time she sat down or got up from her seat. All of the former members of Superior Universal Alignment testified in court and claimed that there had been no ritualistic crime or kidnappings that took place in the cult. Many of them ended up accusing Valentina of persuasion, saying that she forced some of the couples to turn their children over to childless couples or other family members before joining the cult that she had told the followers that these children were negative energies and needed to be left behind. But that was it. That was the worst thing the cult members said about her. A confidential source believed to be an ex-cult member said that Valentina's abuses betrayed their mission, that she used her extraterrestrial knowledge for her own benefit and not for the common good of the cult. But again, that was it. Nothing of the crazy abuses that always come out from members of other cults. There was no mention of any actual crimes or killings or rituals or anything like that. Just that she hates kids and she's making the cult about herself instead of the collective. In early 1994, after hearing all the testimonies, the chief prosecutor, Roberto Pino, 
dismissed the defendants for lack of evidence. But the assistant prosecutor thought the chief prosecutor was wrong and tried to go over the chief prosecutor's head by quickly getting a key witness to take the stand. This witness was Edmilson da Silva Frazao, the witness who claimed to have attended a cult ritual at the doctor's house in 1991, where he said he saw Valentina present. While the assistant prosecutor thought that this was an ace up his sleeve, Edmilson proved to be an unreliable witness as he contradicted himself on the stand. He couldn't give a date for when the ritual had taken place and only said it was either in 1989 or 1991 as he had claimed. Because in his first statement to the police, Edmilson had said it was in 1991. But still, for some unknown reason, other than probably satanic panic, the judge thought that Edmilson's testimony was perfectly fine. And despite the fact that the chief prosecutor wanted to dismiss all of the defendants, the judge pronounced all of the accused guilty on June 20th, 1994. The defense team immediately filed an appeal, and on November 21st, 1994, the prosecutor accepted this appeal, stating that there was a lack of evidence for the conviction. And when this verdict reached the news, the community went apeshit. Several local social groups organized in Belém to protest the appeal. The angry mob went out into the streets and performed a symbolic funeral and burial for the chief prosecutor, Roberto Pino. Understandably, fearing for his life, Pino hightailed it out of Altamira, never to return. On December 22nd, three judges voted to keep the suspects in custody and continue the process. Besides the eyewitnesses, the main pieces of evidence they had against Valentina were the old videotapes. But again, there were still arguments over what she actually said in those videos. The cases soon fell apart as soon as they tried to dig into her book for more evidence. While the judge ruled the book was relevant to the trial, the prosecutors argued that Valentina's books cited spells that would be performed with children's genitals and that these spells could bring about wealth, health, and progress to whoever practiced them. Two of the survivors who had escaped their captors were also brought in to testify. One of the boys said that they were absolutely sure that the person who had lured him into an isolated spot and mutilated his generals was Carlos Alberto Santo Lima, the former military police officer who worked as security for the local gas station. The other boy, Antoniel, told his story about how he was called to deliver the mangoes one day and that when he was attacked from behind, he passed out after a stranger forced a cloth over his face. The boy was then sexually assaulted and castrated. He also identified Carlos Alberto Santos Lima as his attacker. When asked why he was now confident to identify his attacker when he couldn't before, Antoniel said, quote, In the past, I was a frightened child, and today I'm already a man. I assume my actions that I am no longer afraid. End quote. Even though the victims identified only one man, prosecutors kept trying to connect the violent crimes to the entire cult. After dozens of arrests and searches of cult members' homes, police found guns, hooded cloaks, hundreds of videotapes of ceremonies, satanic publications, and Valentina's 200-page book. But after all of these searches, they found no physical evidence that actually connected any of them to the crimes. The military officer, Carlos Alberto, was later convicted. Valentina had an alibi that placed her out of the country at the time of the murders, so she was set free. 
Valentina then fled Brazil and continued her work with the cult all over the world for the next decade. On March 24, 1995, the court received a request for a new hearing from an old eyewitness, Edmilson, the man that claimed that he had attended a cult ritual at the doctor's home and that he had seen Valentina there, wanted to give a new testimony. He confessed that he had lied about everything. He said that he had been coerced by three federal police officers who offered him money and said he couldn't refuse it. Then other stories of police coercion, torture, and abuse throughout the case came to light, meaning no one knew who was telling the truth or who was tortured into telling lies in court. The case was eventually taken to the federal Supreme Court. The panel realized that the original case had been completely fucked from the get. The Supreme Court ordered a new hearing for defense statements and they reopened the investigation phase yet again. They also nullified everyone's convictions. By this time, one of the doctors, Cecil Brandau, had been held for more than two years in Belém prison without an actual trial. This is wild, dude. Girl, it's wild. After he was freed, he wanted to sue the state, claiming that he had been used as a scapegoat by authorities to hide the major flaws in their investigation. But I couldn't find anything on whether he did sue or any result of that. On September 12, 1995, all the other defendants connected to the cult were released and all the proceedings were stopped. After receiving word that the cases had been dismissed, Valentina moved to Buenos Aires. While she still had a few faithful followers, she had lost hundreds of followers because of the bad press during the trials. She continued to preach her truth to the followers she had left, but she refused to take any responsibility for what had happened to the young boys in Altamira. No one really knows what happened to Valentina, where she is now, or if she's even still alive and it is unknown whether superior universal alignment is even still active. But this whole clusterfuck of a story leaves us with one major burning question. If the cult wasn't responsible for these murders and mutilations, then who attacked all the boys between 1989 and 1993? During the years of investigation into the superior universal alignment members, a man named Oswaldo Marceniero was arrested for one of the murders. He was reportedly a high priest of Ubanda. Ubanda was normally a nonviolent Afro-Brazilian religion that combines African tradition, indigenous American beliefs, spiritism, and Roman Catholicism. The high priest and two of his assistants allegedly confessed to committing the murder of Evandro, the boy who was killed and mutilated in the sawmill. However, there were still over a dozen murders that hadn't been solved. Despite trying to blame the murders and mutilations on an alien cult that hated children, it's possible that the one responsible was no other than man who is truly evil incarnate, Francisco Pichagas Rodriguez. Rodriguez was born in Northeast Brazil in 1965. He grew up without a mother after she abandoned the family when he was only four years old. His father left two years later, and he was raised by his abusive grandmother, Maria. While his father would occasionally come back around with strange women, neither he nor the women ever treated Francisco like a son. And every time his father came around and left again, he was always reminded of the pain of abandonment. Even though he had three brothers, he always felt alone. And Francisco would go out by himself at night 
and throw rocks at the neighborhood cats to entertain himself. Which, fuck you, trash, don't ever do that. No, absolutely not. By the time he became an adult, he met a woman and had two daughters. He found work as a bicycle mechanic, and in the 1980s, he moved to Altamira. This is when his dark fantasies became a reality, and he began kidnapping and mutilating young boys. It is unknown the number of boys he killed as he moved from city to city across Brazil, but he would do the same thing in every town. He would go onto the streets and find a poor young boy working for money, just like he used to do when he was a kid. Then he would lure the boy away, sexually abuse him, then cut off their ears, fingers, or genitals. He ended up killing most of his victims by strangling them or stabbing them with a knife. But that awfulness clearly wasn't enough as sometimes he would douse his victims in fuel and light a match and burn them to death. Oh my god. And just a reminder, all of his victims were boys between the ages of 4 and 15. What the fuck, dude? The story had like every horrible true crime aspect. Yeah. It's just it was everything. It was cannibalism, it was burning, it was mutilation. I hate all of this. I hate all of this. Sexual assault, it's all terrible. It's all terrible. But guess what? The Eiffel Tower gets taller in the summer because when the, the iron expands. heats up, ah! yeah, and it could grow up to six inches taller due to thermal expansion. Damn. Right? That's what he said. I love it. Boom. <laughs> so the Eiffel Tower gets hard. Look at that. Who knew? <laughs> but it wasn't until the murder of 15-year-old Jonathan Dos Santos in 2004 fucking four yeah what the police were finally like wait a minute is this a pattern guys you are so bad at your jobs right now i i literally can't you're so bad at it i literally can't just before disappearing jonathan said that he was going to meet a bicycle mechanic who just happened to be francisco he was later arrested under suspicion of killing jonathan along with 16 other boys and this led the investigation going back a decade and a half where they began connecting Francisco to the deaths of young boys dating back to 1989. A search of his house produced several bones of two of his victims and a few pieces of their clothing. They also found boys' t-shirts that had been cut from their neck, which matched several of the other victims, and authorities realized that all of his victims were found within 600 feet of wherever he happened to live in each city. 600 feet? 600 feet. Feet. You guys are so bad at your jobs. Right there. So bad at your jobs. Literally. Yeah. Francisco de Chagas Rodriguez was eventually suspected of killing and mutilating up to 42 boys. Oh my God. Crawl. This is so deeply upsetting. Yeah. And granted, that's a separate count from the boys in Altamira. That 42 number doesn't include the boys who were missing and murdered and mutilated in Altamira. However, because his killings were similar to the murders in Altamira, he's suspected of killing those boys too. But because we can't have any fucking nice things, 
The Altamira cases were closed because, guess the fuck what? There wasn't enough physical evidence to connect them to the crimes because all the cops in Altamira were apparently out to fucking lunch, fingering the assholes instead of doing their fucking jobs. Insane. On March 29th, you know what? I'm, I'm really heated up. I'm going to do another fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> Calm myself down a little bit here. We are more creative in the shower. Here's one of the most useful, weird, fun facts. If you ever felt like you think better in a warm shower, you're probably right. The warm water increases the flow of dopamine and makes us more creative. Ah. Which I totally can attest to. Yeah. I have some of my best uh, thoughts in the shower. Agreed. On March 29th, 2004, Rodriguez confessed to murdering 17 boys, but he would never tell police how he did it or what he did with the bodies. Turns out, shoddy police work is just kind of a thing around Brazil, as the investigations were so sloppy and careless throughout the years that the Inter-American Court of Human Rights ended up denouncing Brazil. It is believed that Francisco might have killed and mutilated many, many more young boys than what we actually know of, and is now considered to be one of the most prolific serial killers in Brazilian history. Francisco Dajagas Rodriguez was eventually convicted of double homicide, abuse against dead bodies, and concealment of corpses, and was sentenced to 580 years in prison. With Rodriguez finally behind bars, one would believe that the nightmare was over. But the fact that a person or an organization was able to commit these horrific crimes and evade the police for decades eroded the public's faith in the Brazilian justice system. While there are those who still believe that Valentina and Superior Universal Alignment are the ones responsible for the missing and murdered boys of Altimara because of the utter incompetence of police investigators, or what some, including you, Amy, have suggested may have actually been a widespread cover-up, we will never actually know for sure who was responsible for what has become known as the Altamira child emasculations. I'm just speechless. What the fuck? That was so awful and terrible. <sighs> I had never heard that before. That's so many victims. Like, why isn't this more well known? This is crazy. An 11 year old accidentally invented ice pops. Thank you. I needed, I needed one last one. <laughs> Yeah, because it's all bad. It's real bad. In 1905, young Frank Epperson left water and soda powder outside overnight with a wooden stirrer in the cup. And when he discovered the mixture had frozen, the Epsicle was born. I love that. Thank you for your service, Frank. Right? You know when he found it, he was like, I'm a motherfucking genius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, the story's fucking horrific in every possible way, and I have no idea why not everyone knows about it. I'm just speechless and shaking my head. That was wonderfully researched, though, and I appreciate you doing it for as traumatized as I'm going to be about it afterwards. Yeah, I was like, okay, so this cult did it because this woman hated kids. Yeah. And these people were freaked out because the spaceship didn't come because they didn't believe in her enough. And I was like, no, probably not. No, because there's not that many people and there's not a shred of fucking evidence. No, man. No way. Wild. And the only thing I can imagine is that Brazil's probably not keen to have it out that they like drop the ball so fucking hard and that their legal system is a shit show because I do remember with the Atlanta child murders, I didn't find out about it till maybe like five years ago. 
and a lot of people didn't know about it but it was because atlanta was like wildly ashamed of it obviously yeah. and that's kind of uh when when you're watching the news at night that's why they would say it's 10 o'clock do you know where your children are because of the atlanta child murders oh shit yeah i did not know that. because that's how many fucking children were being kidnapped and murdered in atlanta that they're like hey i understand it's this time period where you just like let the kids out and they're like just out and about doing whatever the fuck um where the fuck are your kids yeah you should check on them check on your kids yeah so yeah happy october <laughs> i was gonna say you officially <laughs> have usurped me as the most traumatizing horrific story i think oh i don't know i i still think you have you have the aid i don't know one. girl you're giving me a run for my money hard right now <laughs> It's one of those things, like, my instinct is to be like, oh, my God, that, I loved that story. That was so great. And then I'm like, I can't say any of those things because no, I... No, it's horrific. It's a horrific story. Yeah, in every possible way. Yeah, and it's, it's awful. Just like, it's so awful. Where's the story going? Twists and turns. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That was a roller coaster. But thank you for doing it. For sure. I'm glad I know about that now, at least. Thank you so much for your story. I love a, I love a haunted theater. I love a haunted theater. I know. Theater. I knew you would. I knew you would. And it's your birthday month. I feel like I want to give you all your things that you love. Thank you. And, you know, there was like alien. Jesus is an alien, guys. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> there was an alien tie-in, which I very much appreciate. I was here for that. And they probably didn't do it. They just hated children. Which, like, no offense. I kind of get children. I get like, it. especially the greatest. But you don't need to murder them. Just, no. like, don't have them. And don't invite them into your house. Like, I don't. It's not that complicated. When you have one behind you on a cross-country flight you might hate children too just saying yeah yeah uh i don't i don't think they because there's definitely websites that are like she fucking got away with it and it's like i don't think she did it i think she just hated kids yeah (laughs) it was into aliens um and she just and just like how i don't want kids on my flight she doesn't want kids on her fucking alien flight she doesn't want them on her (laughs) alien spacecraft and I can, you know what? And I can respect that. I can respect that. <laughs> like, I honestly get where she's coming from. <laughs> uh, I fucking love you so much. I fucking love you. And we love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Trayton. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot period Amy. Follow the, the show on the ground. We're putting some fun Halloweeny stuff. I also very much appreciate everyone sending me all of the 12-foot Home Depot skeleton. Yes. <laughs> Things that they can find. Uh, that makes my day. You have no idea. Uh, follow us on the gram at Another Fucking Horror Podcast. Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read you your true crazy stories. And we have one coming up in a few weeks. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, Email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of a U and fucking. Guys, we're so fucking obsessed with you. Thanks for being right as fuck. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.